0: All right, so the first one I want to crack into is the Well, Women, and GYN questions, because I probably feel the weakest in this area for sure. So my plan is just to talk about each of the snacks um, and kind of go over the notes that I have a little bit. Um, In full disclosure, uh, these are Abby Jones's snacks, so thanks, Abby. You the best. Um, And yeah, I might just add kind of what I know in there as well. So. Alright, so the first week, um, the question was, describe the clinical presentation of stress, urinary incontinence, and treatment. So I think, first of all, it might be important to break down the different types of incontinence. So there's urge incontinence, which is when you leak urine whenever you have the urge to urinate. Um, This is due to the involuntary contraction of bladder muscles, bladder oversensitivity from infection, or neurological disorders. Um, Stress incontinence is when you leak urine with a cough, laugh, sneeze, exercise, exertion, or lifting. And this is usually caused by relaxed pelvic floor um, and increased abdominal pressure. So the main difference between the two is urge incontinence is too much activity and stress incontinence is too little tone. Um, and then overflow incontinence. That's um, could be instances like a urethral blockage. Um, the bladder is unable to empty properly. Um, it's usually tiny little small amounts of urine. Um, it could be due to urinary retention, hypotonic bladder, or bladder outlet obstruction. Um, bladder outlet obstruction is rare, but it can be caused from um, by scarring. Um, and then functional incontinence is the inability or lack of motivation to reach a toilet on time. And that's usually caused by physical disabilities that limit mobility, um, cognitive impairment, psychological disorders, environmental factors, things like that. And then, of course, the good old mixed incontinence is a little bit of everything. Um, actually, um, so and then the next one is mixed incontinence, which is more than one. And usually that's stress and urge incontinence. All right. So just to recap, overflow incontinence is usually caused by some kind of urethral blockage. That means the bladder is unable to empty properly. Stress incontinence is usually caused by a relaxed pelvic floor and increased abdominal pressure, such as with a cough, sneeze, lifting, etc. And then urge incontinence is bladder oversensitivity, sometimes from infection or neurological disorders. All right, so what are we going to do for these patients? Um, The first thing we want them to do is a voiding diary, just so we can get a good history. And that history consists of um, how often do you go to the bathroom during waking hours? How often do you get up in the middle of the night to void? Do you rush to go to the bathroom? Um, Do you ever leak urine while trying to get to the bathroom on time? Do you leak urine when laughing, sneezing, coughing, exercising, or lifting? Do you have pelvic pain? Do you experience pain with intercourse? And do you see blood in your urine? So that's the first thing we want to do is just get a really good history and have these patients collect a voiding diary that answers all of those questions. Um, And then as far as the physical exam goes, um, on their abdomen, you want to check and see if you feel any bladder distension or suprapubic pain. Um, On the pelvic exam, you're basically just looking for good general pelvic support and tissue health. Um, Looking at the urethra, do they have any diverticulum, um, a prolapse, or a caruncle? Um, vaginally, any atrophy, prolapse, or any kind of lesions. And then also we want to check their Kegel strength. Um, and normal means that they can hold a Kegel for three to four seconds. So some lab works that we might draw on this patient would be a urinalysis. Um, this basically rules out infection, um, rules out hematuria, pyuria, bacteriuria, glucosuria, proteinuria, um, and then send out for culture and sensitivity if you have any positive findings or strong a strong suspicion of urinary tract infection. And then blood work is appropriate. For example, um, a glucose or a hemoglobin A1C may be good, or even like a BUN and a creatinine. So other tests that you may do is um, assess a, a PVR, which stands for post-void residual. Um, and you can do that with a bladder scan or an in-and-out catheter. Um, you may do a cough stress test, and this is specific for stress urinary incontinence. Um, and so the way that's done is you, you know insert a catheter, and you fill the bladder with 250 to 300 milliliters of normal saline and then you have the patient bear down and cough and then you do that while they're laying flat in the supine position and then you do that when they're standing Um, and then you're just kind of looking and seeing if any leakage of urine occurs so um, if they do have some leakage of urine you gently support the urethra kind of put your finger in there and push up on the urethra and then have them do that again in the supine position. Um, and then that would help to see if a sling would be beneficial or not for these patients. Um, and then there's also another test called urethral hypermobility, which checks for excessive movement of the urethra. And to do that, you put a Q-tip in the urethra and then you have them bear down, do the valsalva maneuver. Um, normal would be that the Q-tip barely moves, moves less than 30 degrees and abnormal is greater than 30 degrees of movement. All right. So what do we do for these women? Um, treatment, first of all, lifestyle modifications. Um, and we usually do these for about six months and see if it gets better just doing these things. Um, so one of the things would be to eliminate, um, some of the contributing factors such as paying attention to their diet. Um, we all know that caffeine, carbonation, Alcohol, meats, and soy um, can all be bladder irritants. Um, Certain medications, weight loss, um, constipation, and smoking cessation. And then also teaching them about um, Kegel exercises. So um, we need to tell our patients to do um, three sets of 8 to 12 contractions. And each contraction needs to be sustained for 8 to 10 seconds. So if you do that... So next would be pelvic floor exercises, such as Kegel exercises, Um, three sets of eight to 12 contractions sustained for eight to 10 10 seconds a day. So having them squeeze down, hold, 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 release, doing that eight to 12 times in a row, and then having them do those eight to 12 times, three times a day. Um, I know my preceptor would tell patients every time she walks through a door frame, she would do 10 Kegels or every time she got caught at a red light, she would do 10 Kegels, which really made for a very interesting, um, preceptorship. Cause every time we walked through a door frame or, you know, we're in the car together, I knew she was doing Kegels, um, bladder training. Um, this is with urgent, urge incontinence. Um, and that's just, we try that for about six weeks. It's just time voiding, assisted voiding with straining on urination and double voiding. So non-pharmac, non-pharmacological things we can do for incontinence. Um, pelvic floor PT, vaginal weighted cones, biofeedback or pessary. Um, and then farm things that we can do, um, topical vaginal estrogen. And this is for your peri or post women. Um, duloxetine, S-N-I-R, primarily used for depression, um, Anti-musconeric medications, this is oxybutynin. Um, and then it's important to know that oxybutynin, that is, um, that's for overactive bladder. And it causes um, constipation, dry eyes, mouth, urinary tension. Um, but it's contraindicated in people who already have urinary retention or who have uncontrolled narrow angle glaucoma. Um, you can also do myrabegrin, which is a beta-3 adrenergic receptor agonist. Um, tricyclic antidepressants, local vaginal estrogens, or antispasmodics, such as UroBlue, Prosedis, etc. Um, And then we're gonna trial this for about two to three months. And if we're not seeing a difference, that would be when we need to refer them. Um, you also would think about referring them if they have hematuria without any other signs of infection. Um, I think Dr. Collins taught us, if you see blood, it's cancer until proven otherwise. Um, If they have recurrent um, UTIs or anything else you're worried about, this would warrant referral. So, all right, that is week one, stress incontinence. Um, And really, I talked about different types of incontinence um, in general just because I feel like, you know, there's no guarantee that just stress will be on this test. So, all right, Um, question number two, which maternal health conditions require additional folic acid supplementation? during the preconception period, and what are the recommended dosages of these supplements. All right, so we all know that folic acid prevents neural tube defects. Um, Folate, which is B9, occurs naturally in foods, and folic acid is simply the synthetic form of folate. So some things that may cause low folate, um, poor dietary intake, um, such as people who eat low carb, um, anorexia, or food insecurities, um, medication interference, malabsorption syndrome, such as IBS, bypass surgery, celiac disease, liver disease, alcohol abuse, and um, MTHFR polymorphisms. So the typical recommendation for most women is 0.4 milligrams of folic acid daily. Um, and we would want them to begin that one month before conception and then continue in it throughout pregnancy. Um, if they have a history of a neural tube defect in a previous child, then four milligrams a day, beginning one to three months preconception. Um, and then after the first 12 weeks, the dose is reduced to 0.4 milligrams. Oh, that's, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, all right. Seizure disorders, um, four milligrams a day. MTHFR, one milligram is reasonable. Women of Mexican ascent, one milligram. And malabsorption, such as a history of a bypass, that kind of thing, would be one milligram as well. All right. Question number three. Who is the appropriate candidate for hormone replacement therapy? What is the ideal length of time a woman should limit taking it to? And who is a candidate for opposed versus unopposed hormone replacement therapy? All right, so first let's just talk about menopause in general. Um, menopause is a transitional phase. It's not a pathological entity. Um, and the definition of menopause is 12 months without a period. So some labs that might give you a clue that a woman is in menopause Um, is your FSH is probably going to be high because you're trying to stimulate a follicle. Um, The ovaries produce less estradiol, progesterone, and androgens. So therefore, your progesterone and your estrogen are low. But remember, your follicle-stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone are going to be high because they're trying to stimulate these ovaries that are no longer working. Um, So preventative measures... So there are some things that women can do um, to kind of help prevent complications that arise from the decrease in estrogen that occurs when you go through menopause. Um, One of those things that can happen is cardiac disease. So it's important that we educate women on aerobic exercise, a low-fat dying, and no smoking. Um, To prevent osteoporosis, we need to encourage calcium in the diet and weight-bearing exercise. Um, and also just in general, we need to recommend to women less alcohol, caffeine, and refined sugars, um, and then supplements, vitamin E, and then um, herbal and complementary therapies for these women include evening primrose oil and oil-based lubricants. All right, so now let's talk about hormone therapy in general. So um, it is indicated for people who have vasomotor symptoms that disrupt a person's life, um, and vasomotor symptoms include hot flashes, uh, flushing, anxiety, sleep disturbances, heart palpitations um, and really we don't want to just give hormone replacement therapy to anybody we want to try other treatment options first but if the symptoms are unresponsive to other treatments that might be a sign that she's a good candidate for this. Um, another um, reason you might need hormone replacement therapy is genital atrophy and reduce bone mineral density and mood disturbance related to hormone changes. So your ideal candidate would be perimenopausal um, or within 10 years of menopause. Um, And most of these women are in the 45 to 59 age range. Um, They really don't need to have any risk factors for heart disease or breast cancers. Um, Contraindications, history of estrogen-sensitive tumor or breast cancer, endometrial hyperplasia or carcinoma, or an undiagnosed um, PMB, um, postmenopausal bleeding. Um, active liver disease with normal liver function test, or if they have a history of DVTs, cardiovascular disease, or myocardial infarctions. So, as far as treatment goes, we want short-term treatment less than five years. Um, estrogen only can be used in women without a uterus, and estrogen plus progesterone must be used in women with a uterus. Um, genital only symptoms, local estrogen is preferred. Um, And then another um, alternative is um, SSRIs or SNRIs for the vasomotor symptoms. All right. So that was hormone replacement therapy. Um, Number four, think about COCs. What are the absolute conjure indications for COCs? Name warning signs for someone to whom you prescribe COCs, and how about warning signs for an IUD? So the conjure indications to COC, pregnancy, severe liver disease, Diabetic neuropathy or vascular disease, undiagnosed abnormal genital bleeding, high risk for DVT, um, a history of or current um, coronary heart disease or cerebrovascular disease, hypertension with a systolic greater than 160 or a diastolic greater than 100, um, cancer of reproductive organs or breast, migraine with an aura, um, an organ transplant, women who are 35 years or older who smoke 15 or more cigarettes a day, um, it's important to note that COCs may be less effective in women with the BMI over 30. Um, you want to wait um, 21 days if she is postpartum. And then it would also be contraindicated if she has lupus. Um, and there have been some um, studies that have shown that you may not want to give COCs to women who are breastfeeding. Because it might decrease your milk supply. But um, that's kind of controversial. There might actually be more research showing that it doesn't. So, um, all right, interactions with medications. Um, COCs can interfere with some antibiotics that will make the COC not work as well. Those antibiotics specifically are tetracycline and penicillin. Um, some anticonvulsants decrease COCs in lower medication therapeutic levels. Um, some anti-HIV medications. So, all right, the warning signs for COCs is ACHES, A-C-H-E-S. A stands for abdominal pain. C stands for chest pain, H stands for headache, I stands E stands I already said it Um, E stands for eye problems or visual disturbances, and S stands for severe pain in your legs or numbness, tingling of extremities. And basically, all this is pretty much looking out for um, blood clots and liver involvement. You know, would be the abdominal pain or pregnancy. You know, lots of different things. Um, All right, warning signs for an IUD is pains. P-A-I-N-S. Um, P stands for period, late, as in you might be pregnant. Um, a is abdominal pain or pain with intercourse. I is infection exposure, um, particularly sexually transmitted diseases. Um, so, you know, if you have a normal vaginal discharge, that could be a sign of an infection. Um, N is not feeling well, fevers, chills. And S is strings, um, strings missing, shorter or longer. So those are the aches and pains warning signs for COCs. All right. So number five, what is your plan for a woman presenting with postmenopausal bleeding? So there are lots of things that can cause postmenopausal bleeding. Um, there's this acronym, and hopefully I'm saying it right: PALM Um, And so what that stands for, the PALM P stands for polyps. A stands for adenomyosis, L stands for leomyomas, um, and M stands for malignancy. And then Coen, those are more. Um, well, let me, let me going back, the palm ones are more like structural things. Um, coen categories. The C stands for coagulopathy. O stands for ovulatory dysfunction. E is endometrial causes. I is atrogenic, and E, I mean N, is not yet classified. So if a woman comes in with um, postmenopausal bleeding, um, first thing we're going to do is a physical exam, um, vital signs, speculum exam, a bimanual exam, fill in her inguinal lymph nodes, um, and a rectovaginal exam. Um, It's important to get a really, really good history on her. You know, you want her G's and P's, um, you know, thorough history about her menarche. Um, how old was she when she first started Menarch how old was she when was she went through menopause um, what symptoms does she have with it when did it start, how long has it lasted how severe is the bleeding um, have you she noticed an interval to it like is it random, is it after sex is it cyclic, um, is it isolated or is it recurrent what's the amount, consistency, the color of the bleeding um, and other things we might want to know, any GI symptoms abdominal distension pain, cramping backache, pelvic discomfort um, persistent cough, which could be a sign that the cancer has metastasized, um, or easy bruising, which could be a sign of liver function. Um, we also want to get a thorough medical history on her. Um, we want to know if she has any endocrine disorders, such as diabetes, thyroid, PCOS. If she has heart disease, liver disease, or um, coagulopathy or clotting clot disorders. Um, certain medications we want to know about. Has she um, ever taken tamoxifen? Is she on hormone replacement therapy? aspirin or anticoagulants, or estrogen precursors. Um, so there are some women who are more likely to experience postmenopausal bleeding, and those are the women that had early menarche or late menopause, um, nulliparous nulip- or infertile women, um, PCOS, estrogen-producing tumors, hereditary nonpolyposis colorectal cancer, obesity, diabetes, or previous or current breast cancer treatment. All right. so what's our plan for these women um, a cbc cervical cytology um, a transvaginal ultrasound so remember with the transvaginal ultrasound you're looking at the endometrial stripe um, anything greater than five millimeters is concerning um, the endometrial biopsy would be the next thing or maybe even the first thing that you do um, you would do this if the endometrial lining is thicker than four millimeters because remember five millimeters is concerning Um, or if the endometrium shows diffuse or focal increased echogenicity, um, or if the endometrium is not adequately visualized on sonography or if the woman has persistent bleeding. All right. Number six, when you initiate COCs on a person, at what point would you consider intervening if she has breakthrough bleeding and what would you do to intervene? So, first of all, we want to get a history and evaluation. Um, what are the patient's main concerns? How has the bleeding changed? Is she having pain with sex, pain in general, urinary symptoms? Um, if that's the case, it's unlikely to be your birth control pills. Um, what kind of drugs and medications is she on? How long has she been on the birth control pills? Um, and of course, we want to roll out pregnancy. Um, we want to, on our visual exam, we want to look and see if she has any ectopy, um, cervicitis, cervical polyps. Cervical cancer, infection, um, trauma, uterine, fibroids, polyps, etc. An ultrasound may be useful in determining if she she has a fibroid or a polyp. And then an endometrial biopsy may not be a bad idea if she's over 35, um, if she's been bleeding for three months. If she's over the age of 35, if she has a history of endometrial hyperplasia, or if she has prolonged periods of unopposed estrogen stimulation related to chronic anovulation. All right. So usually with these women, you want to trial them on a birth control pills for about six months. Um, But I mean, it's always up to your patient. If they're super stressed out two months into it, then you could always change it sooner. But six months is the general rule of thumb. Um, You can increase estrogen dose. um, See that can stabilize endometrium a little bit better. Um, or you can try the vaginal ring. Apparently, that has more stable hormone levels. Um, you can also try inserts. Um, and just because they're having breakthrough bleeding, it's important to know that this is not associated with the decreased effectiveness of the birth control pills, um, unless they're having breakthrough bleeding because they're not taking their pills like they're supposed to be. But if they're taking their pills the same time every day, or you know, around the same, they're not skipping days on you know pills, and they're still having breakthrough bleeding, it does not mean that their birth control isn't effective. Um, And then also smoking cessation because smoking is evil and everyone should quit smoking. All right. Number seven. AMCELL criteria is used for diagnosis of what? BV. Um, And what are the criteria? How many does the women have to have in order to be diagnosed with the condition? All right. So let's talk about BV. Um, BV is caused by a lack of lactobacilli, which leads to an alkaline vagina. Um, So, and usually once the lactobacilli you know are kind of killed off the other organisms can take over like gardnerella e coli corny bacterium um, so risk factors um, menstrual bleeding um, anything that really affects the ph of your vagina so menstrual bleeding douching a new sexual partner smoking lack of condom use and oral sex um, so many women are asymptomatic um, and you they may even like just show up on their pap smear And if that's the case, you don't treat it unless they're, or follow up really about it, if they're asymptomatic, unless they're pregnant. Um, Or the symptoms could be lots of really thin vaginal discharge and a vaginal odor that is worse after intercourse. Um, And then sometimes people will describe this odor as kind of fishy. Um, So BV can lead to miscarriage, preterm labor, choreo, postpartum postpartum endometriosis, um, is that word is that right? Would it be postpartum endometriosis or postpartum endometritis? It says metriosis, but I bet it's just, you know, end, endometritis. Um, and then upper genital infection and increases your S T D risk. All right, so the gold standard for diagnosing B V is gram staining. Um, but the AM cell criteria, you have to have three out of the four. It has a 90% sensitivity. So the AM cell criteria are one discharge Um, thin homogeneous grayish white adherent to the vaginal walls Uh, number two is the KOH has to have a positive width test Um, number three is the wet prep shows clue cells Um, and i think i read somewhere um this isn't in abby's notes but i think i read somewhere it has to be 20 percent of the of the cells have to be clue cells Uh, and then ph greater than 4.5 which is an alkaline environment for the vagina so, if you have three out of four of those, then you have bacterial vaginosis. Um, so, if she's not pregnant, we are going to treat her with Flagyl. 500 milligrams POBID times seven days. Um, we can also do topical uh, Metrogel 0.75% intravaginal daily times five days. You could even do clindamycin or a cream, too. Um, So it's important that you tell these patients no alcohol while on Flagyl um, or or Tenazadol. Um, And for Metrodinazole, which is Flagyl, 48 hours afterwards, um, no alcohol. And then for Tinadinozole, it's 72 hours. And if you're giving them the Clindamycin cream, you want them to know that Clindamycin can weaken condoms. So if she's pregnant, we're going to do Flagyl, 250 milligrams, P.O., Three times a day, times seven days. Um, You never use topical clindamycin in pregnant women. And then you do a test of cure in one month. So that is the fast and furious on bacterial vaginosis. All right. How does premature ovalian failure present? So the definition of premature ovalian failure is hypergonadotropic hypogonadism before the age of 40, a.k.a premature menopause. So the symptoms of this are oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea, acutely or prolonged, um, difficulty conceiving, um, symptoms of estrogen deficiency such as hot flashes, vaginal dryness, dyspareunia. Um, Some labs would be a low serum anti-malarian hormone levels, elevated serum gonadotropins, and elevated FSH. Um, You would want to measure this on cycle day three if you knew what her cycle was. Um, and if she's amenorrheic, and it's just any random day. And you would have also have a low serum estradiol. Um, let's see the sequelae um, of premature ovarian failure. Obviously, you know you lose that estrogen, so bone loss, risk for osteoporosis, um, greater risk for cardiovascular disease, diminished well-being, sexual and otherwise, dementia and cognitive decline. Um, and it's important to rule out your differential diagnoses: pregnancy, hyperprolactinemia and um, thyroid disorders. All right. We're halfway there, guys, or more than halfway there. All right, number nine. Name some causes of male infertility. All right. So some causes, endocrine and systemic disorders, um, congenital acquired such as disease or tumors or systemic disorders such as obesity, um, primary testicular defects and spermatogenesis, um, abnormal sperm count structure, et cetera, can be acquired or congenital climb um, filters, mumps, toxins, etc. can cause it. Um, sperm transport disorders, um, such as problems in the epididymis, vas deferens, ejaculatory duct, seminal vesicles, prostate, or sexual dysfunction. Um, or just idiopathic male fertility. We don't know why. And that's up to 40% of men. So our workup is going to be a history, physical, semen analysis, endocrine testing, imaging, and genetic test. right number 10 what are the non-contraceptive benefits of cocs Um, well we all know it can regulate your menstrual cycle it improves regularity such as oligomenorrhea due to pcos or suppresses cycles it decreases abnormal uterine bleeding it minimizes menstrual migraines and pms pmdd symptoms Um, and it decreases menstrual blood loss and risk of iron deficiency anemia Um, It can also help with pelvic pain because it decreases endometriosis pain and dysmenorrhea. Um, No middle schmerz because you're suppressing your ovulation, which leads to a decrease in ovarian cyst. Um, Cancer risk reduction. It decreases your risk of endometrial and ovarian cancer. And it also helps with hormone issues um, such as hyperadrenergicism. Yeah, whatever. Um, Reduction in dermatological manifestation of hyperaginogenism, such as acne and hirsutism, um, hormonal replacement and premature ovarian insufficiency, perimenopausal, um, improved bone density, decreased hot flashes, decreased abnormal uterine bleeding, and also lowers your risk of PID, ectopic pregnancy, and benign breast disease. So, COCs can be a great option for a lot of women for multiple reasons. All right, number 11. What are the risk factors for cervical cancer? Number one, HPV. Number two, immune system deficiency. Number three, oh, I'm not going to keep numbering. Um, herpes, <laughs> smoking, um, age, late teens to mid-30s. Oh, I didn't know that. That's the most Oh, interesting. Um, socioeconomic factors, um, and that's because these women are less likely to get screened. Um, oral contraceptives, and that's probably because they have a greater area of cervical ectopy. Um, and exposure to DES. Um, and DES was, just a recap, was giving, given in the 1940s to 1970s. So it's important to ask our patients about DES. Number 12. What does a first degree cistocele look like? A second degree? A third degree? How about a rectocele? All right. So we all know cistocele is bladder prolapse, um, which can lead to incomplete bladder emptying and can cause urinary tract infections. A grade zero. No prolapse, three centimeters above the hymen. Grade one, mild prolapse. Bladder drops only short way into the vagina, one centimeter above hymen. Grade two, moderate prolapse. Protrudes to or beyond one centimeter above the hymen, but not more than one centimeter below. Grade three, most advanced prolapse. This is when the bladder bulges out through the opening of the vagina, and grade four is when your bladder is basically hanging out, protrudes the length of the vagina beyond the hymen. All right, rectosil, incomplete rectal emptying. Um, these patients sometimes have to have to splint, like push down, you know, put their fingers inside and push down to be able to have bowel movements. And yeah, so that's the main cystosil and rectocil high points. Um, number thirteen: What is the presentation of overflow incontinence and in treatment? And we kind of talked about this. Describe presentation of urge incontinence and in treatment. So this will really just be a recap. Um, overactive bladder is the urgency without incontinence. Um, overflow incontinence is involuntary. Excuse me, involuntary urine release without urge to urinate. Dribbling might leak with position changes, may be related to urinary retention, hypotonic bladder, or bladder outlet obstruction. Um, treatment is to look at the postvoid residual, urodynamic testing, and referral. With urge incontinence, a strong desire to urinate um, that's difficult to postpone, involuntary leakage with immediately after urgency, frequency voiding more than eight times an hour. Wow, that's a lot. Um, treatment, pelvic muscle training, good bladder habits, bladder training, um, that helps with urgency and frequency and anticholinergics, um, bladder retraining, such as avoiding diary, including fluid intake, delay the first urge sensation until the bladder is a little more full, contract pelvic floor muscles and distract self to avoid the urge and try to just space out, you know, between three to four hours between voids. Mirabegron is an antispasmodic it relaxes the detrusor smooth muscle and increases bladder capacity um, it's a beta 3 adrenergic receptor agonist um, anticholinergic anti-mucigeneric agents um, reduces involuntary detrusor muscle contractions increases bladder capacity most effective when combined with behavioral therapy and that is our oxybutynin and remember the side effects dry mouth, blurred vision, constipation dizziness, headache all right, STDs, the very last one. Describe the current CDC recommendation treatment regimen for sexually transmitted diseases in non-pregnant women. All right, so this is short and sweet. Gonorrhea, rocephin, also known as ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM injection. Or you can do cef, I'm going to butcher all these, cefixim. 400 milligrams PO or azithromycin, one gram PO. Chlamydia, azithromycin, one gram PO or doxycycline, 100 milligrams PO, BID times seven days. That, that was on the Sway exam and um, the, the questions were for chlamydia, you're treating her partner um, which one would be a good treatment for her partner. And they didn't have azithromycin of one gram on there. Cause I knew that one. All they had was erythromycin one gram. And I was like, man, they're both mycins. So I'll go with that one. But no, the correct answer is doxycycline. 100 milligrams P-O-B-I-D times seven days for her partner. Cause he ain't pregnant. Um, and you never give doxycycline to pregnant women. Cause it can cause the baby's teeth to be gray. At least I think that's what I remember. All right. Um, herpes. Herpes. Um, for the very first episode, we're going to do 400 milligrams PO TID times 7 to 10 days. Um, recurrent episodes are the same treatment but only for 5 days. Um, and then if we're trying to suppress outbreaks, we're going to do it BID, five, uh, 400 milligrams BID. Um, valcyclovir, 1 gram PO BID times 7 to 10 days for the first. Um, 500 milligrams BID times 3 days. Really? What else is there? I love you. All right, I love you. Sorry about that. Pedro was telling me goodbye. He's going get his haircut. Okay. Um, all right, we're talking about treating herpes with valcyclovir. One gram PO BID times seven to ten days for the first outbreak. 500 milligrams BID times three days for recurrent outbreaks. Um, and then for suppression, you can do 500 milligrams BID or one gram every day for suppression. Um, And this has better bioavailability and less frequent dosing. All right. For syphilis, um, benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units IM times one dose. Um, And this is the only treatment for syphilis. So if they are allergic to penicillin, we are going to, um, I forget what that word's called, where you make them not allergic to it. (laughs) Um, Introduce it slowly. I don't know. Anyway. You get it. Penicillin. Um, trichomonas, Tricky Ricky. Um, Metronidazole, which is also known as Flagyl. 2 grams PO times 1 dose. Or you can do Tinidazole. So any kind of the azole, 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 2 grams PO. All right, so that's how we're going to treat Tricky, tricky Ricky. Cane Croid, um, azithromycin, 1 gram PO, or Rosefin, 250 milligrams IM. All right, so the first one I want to – okay, sorry about that. I kept pressing the button to play it back, and I don't want to hear myself yet. Okay, genital warts, um, imiquimod, 3.75% cream, or podophilics, 0.5% gel, or synecathicins, 15% ointment. Um, and like I said, this is for non-pregnant women, but I do specifically remember, um, this on the Sway exam and for pregnant women, you give them that TC, the, the, something with the acid and they can, they can have acid, which just seems kind of weird to me. Like you're giving pregnant people acid. Um, all right. For scabies, um, permethrin 5% cream applied to the body from the neck down. You wash it off after it's been on for eight to 14 hours. Um, or you can do ivermectin 200 micrograms per kilogram PO and repeat in two weeks. Um, And then for pubic lice, permethrin 1% cream, apply and wash off after 10 minutes. So that's just the fast and dirty STI treatments. And that is all of the Well Women and GYN. Hopefully I didn't mess anything up. And if I did, well, wish me luck on boards. All right. Thanks.